John chapter 19. John chapter 19. I'm speaking on the subject, the twin miracles of Easter. The twin miracles of Easter. We think about the miracle of the resurrection, but that's not the only miracle associated with Passion Week, not the only uh, miracle associated even with the death and resurrection of Jesus. So we'll talk about that today. Truly the watershed moment of all history is the resurrection of Jesus Christ on the first day of the week almost 2,000 years ago. I hope you agree with me. If Jesus had not come out of that grave, we would be of all men most miserable. No hope. We do not worship a dead Savior. The symbol of Christianity is not the tomb. It is the empty tomb and a living Savior who's coming again for us. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the tomb was a miracle. It was the most glorious miracle ever wrought by God. It signaled the death of death. It signaled the overcoming of sin for which death is just the penalty. I rejoice to be able to tell you with all the authority of God's Word, Jesus came out of that tomb on the third day a victor over sin, death, and hell. I hope you'll see that in a new light this morning and go away rejoicing. John chapter 19, I want you to notice one verse in chapter 19 and then the first few verses of chapter 20. For the sake of time, we won't be able to read the passage that deals with the crucifixion of Christ. But in verse 30, as Jesus is hanging upon the cross, The Scripture says, when Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, the sour wine, He said, it is finished. And He bowed His head and gave up the ghost, or He dismissed His spirit. He died. He really died. Look at chapter 20, verse 1. The first day of the week cometh Mary Magdalene early, when it was yet dark under the sepulcher, and seeth the stone taken away from the sepulchre. Then she runneth and cometh to Simon Peter and to the other disciple, whom Jesus loved. That's John's favorite way of referring to himself. And he saith unto them, They have taken away the Lord out of the sepulchre, and we know not where they have laid him. Peter therefore went forth, and that other disciple, and they came to the sepulchre. So they ran both together, and the other disciple, John, did outrun Peter, and came first to the sepulcher. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen clothes lying, yet went he not in. Then cometh Simon Peter following him, and went into the sepulcher, and seeth the linen clothes lie, and the napkin, the sidarium, that was about his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but wrapped together in a place by itself. Then went in also that other disciple, which came first to the sepulcher, and he saw and believed." For as yet they knew not the Scripture, that He must rise again from the dead. They needed the Holy Spirit. And when Jesus breathed on them and they received the Holy Spirit, they got it. They believed. Again, I mentioned this, the miracle of Jesus being raised on Sunday, early on Sunday morning 
the resurrection of Christ is not the only miracle of Passion Week. We know of several might be considered lesser miracles, certainly not as great as the resurrection. I think of the fact that on Passion Week, Jesus cursed the fig tree and it withered up. The disciples were surprised at that. That's the power of Christ. That was a miracle. Peter whacked the ear off of a guy and Jesus put it back on. I think he was aiming for his head. It's a good thing he missed. But even if it had been his head, Jesus could put his head back on. That was a miracle. But the two primary miracles of Passion Week is the miracle of the cross and the miracle of the empty tomb. The miracle of the cross. Let's talk about that. History tells us there were some 30,000 Jews crucified, hung on crosses by Romans about the time of Christ. Why is it we remember only one of them? Can you tell me anybody else? Why do we remember only one? The death of Jesus of Nazareth was no ordinary death. Consider with me this morning, He died exactly as it had been prophesied of Him in the Old Testament. Jesus controlled every detail of His own death. Absolutely amazing. He died on His own terms. In verse 20 that we just read, or verse 30 of chapter 19, and he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. He dismissed his spirit. He did this as he uttered, if we examine the other gospel accounts, as he uttered the seventh and final saying from the cross, Father, into thy hands I commend or commit my spirit, quoting from Psalm 31. It was a voluntary thing. He testified before he went to the cross in John chapter 10, verse 17. Listen carefully. No man taketh my life from me. The Romans didn't do it. The Jews didn't do it. The devil didn't do it. No man taketh my life from me. I lay it down of myself. I have the power, the authority to lay it down. I have the power to take it again. That's amazing. Every aspect of his death, the timing, the manner, the aftermath, was all prophesied. And Jesus did it on his own. And he didn't do it by committing suicide. Now, Satan had certainly tried to kill Jesus before this, both directly and through wicked men. We remember, for example, Herod at the time of Jesus' birth or a couple of years later when the Magi came from the east to Jerusalem and saying, where is he that is born king of the Jews? And, and uh, the wise men or the, uh, the, the scribes checked and they said, according to the prophet Micah, he was to be born in Bethlehem, which was just a couple of miles away. So the wise men followed the star until it came and stood over the place where the young child was. It was a house. It was not the stable but God warned those magi to go back to their home country, wherever it was, another way, different way from the way they came. Why? Because Herod had fabricated this wicked scheme to kill all the boy babies two years and under in Bethlehem and the surroundings. 
Did he get Jesus? No. God warned Joseph to take the young child and flee into Egypt. When Herod died, the same angel appeared to Joseph and said, it's safe to go back. Even Herod couldn't kill Jesus. Satan tried to kill him in the wilderness. He couldn't get, kill him. Jesus gave his life willingly. For sin and sinners. And if you had been the only sinner who ever lived, he would have still have come and given his life for you. The devil doesn't want you to think of that that way. Jesus was born to die. That's why he came into this world. Someone as well said, every crash ought to have a cross hanging over it. Every nativity scene should have the shadow of the cross cast over it, because that's why he came. You see, Jesus didn't just succumb to his mortal wounds. He died on his own terms. He died just when God wanted him to. He died at the very moment that Passover lambs were being slain by the thousands throughout the land of Israel and even faithful Jews in other places. Our text tells us how because the Sabbath was nearing and, and the Jews didn't want the, this trio of condemned corpses, Christ in the center cross and two malefactors, two thieves on either side, one on either side. The Jews didn't want those corpses to remain on the cross over the Sabbath day and the high, the high day that was that weekend. And so they went to Pilate, and they got permission from Pilate, the Roman governor, that the legs of these condemned criminals could be broken to hasten death. The Romans were cruel. How did they do this? They would take a sledgehammer and crush the legs to shivers. And of course, the body would collapse and slump. There would be excruciating pain. There would be suffocation and quick death. Normally, the Romans would just let the corpses rot on those crosses. But when they came to Jesus on the center cross, they found he'd already died. He had dismissed his spirit. And so the prophecy of Psalm 34, verse 20, was literally fulfilled. He keepeth all his bones. Not one of them was broken. <laughs> Amazing, the death of Jesus, the miracle of Jesus. He died on his own terms. Secondly, he died amid supernatural phenomena. I think it's only fitting, it's only to be expected that the death of a supernatural person like the Son of God on the cross of Calvary would be attended with supernatural phenomena, with attendant authenticating miracles. Several unbelievable things happened all at once when Jesus dismissed his spirit. Let's visit that for a few moments. First of all, there was the darkening of the sun at midday. That doesn't happen. It wasn't a solar eclipse either. It was impossible at Passover time in the middle of the month for there to be a 
an eclipse. But the Bible says in Matthew chapter 27, if you wish to turn there quickly, Matthew chapter 27, verse 45. Matthew 27, 45. Now from the sixth hour, that would be high noon, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour, three o'clock in the afternoon. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice saying, and it's given in Hebrew there, Eli, Eli, lama sabbathini, that is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? At the very zenith of daylight hours, it was pitch black on Golgotha. Someone has well said, I like this. It was as if when the Son of God died, His Father just ordered that the flag of nature be flown at half-mast. He pulled the curtain so that the gawking eyes of sinful men could not see the soul anguish of His Son as He became the sin-bearer for you and for me. Something dreadful was happening. Something very important for God to call attention to what was happening that day. Don't you know that Jesus felt that darkness? It caused him all the more keenly to sense the, his alienation from his father. That's why he cried out of that midnight darkness at midday, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The Bible says in the Old Testament that God is of purer eyes than to behold evil. He cannot gaze upon iniquity. He could not gaze upon His own Son at that moment because He was the sin-bearer of the sins of the whole world. Supernatural phenomena, the darkening of the sun at midday, but that's not all. In another incident that few preachers ever mention because they can't explain it, doesn't fit into their theology. The Bible says in Matthew 27, verse 51, the same passage, same chapter we just alluded to, and the veil of the temple was rent or torn in twain into from the top to the bottom. Now, this coincided with a great earthquake while Jesus was hanging on the cross. But what happened being that three-inch veil being torn from the top to the bottom cannot be explained by an earthquake because if it was an earthquake that caused it. It had been torn from the bottom to the top. Let me ask you, why was that big three-inch veil there in the first place? Why was that veil in, in, in the temple torn? Why, why was it even there in the first place? It was there to separate sinful men from a holy God. That veil separated the most holy place called the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was covered by the cherubim, and atop it was the mercy seat, the golden lid. It separated that whole, most holy place from the holy place where the priest could enter. And the Holy of Holies was guarded by the cherubim. That's where God dwelt. Only one man on one day out of the year the holiest day of the year of the Jewish calendar. Only one man could go into that Holy of Holies. That was the high priest. He couldn't go with his royal vestments, with that beautiful breastplate and that uh, bonnet that he wore that said holiness to the Lord. No, all of that was taken off. Plain linen garments, drab, plain linen garments. Garments of humiliation, that's what he donned 
even as Jesus wore a homespun robe. And he went into that holy of holies. He had bells on, his, on, on the tassels of his garment. There was a rope attached to him that went all the way out to the outside. And he was the people's representative. And he offered a sacrifice first for his own sins, and then he offered a sacrifice for the sins of the people. And if God did not offer, did not re- receive the, the sacrifice of the people's representative, he would be zapped right there. And they'd have to pull him out. God's a holy God, folks. He's trying to teach us that sin separates us from Him. Your neighbor may not think much of it. Your husband or your wife may not think much of it. But God hates sin. Sin separates us from Him. Something has to be done about our sin. That's why Jesus came. What a dramatic miracle highlighted that separation. No human hands could have torn that veil. Only God could. It was supernatural. It was a miracle. Can you think of the implications of that? The veil of the temple was torn in two. That means no more need for human priests. No more sacrifices. No more barriers between us and God. Why? Because Jesus, our great high priest, has done what no priest could ever do. He tore down the barrier between us and God. From the cross, He ruled. (laughs) If you desire to approach God, if you expect to live with Him forever, the death of Christ is the only way. Think of it. Jesus, weak physically through loss of blood, through being beaten with the Roman cat of nine tails and with rods, through dehydration, through the crown of thorns that had pierced his lovely brow, nailed to a cross with his hands, through his hands and his feet, is still so strong that he rips a three-inch thick veil in the temple. What power? Do you think uh, uh, someone who could do that would be able to save you completely from your sins? I think so. That's not all. That's not the only amazing phenomenon that took place. The Bible says in Matthew chapter 27, and and you may still be there, but if you're not, I'd love for you to see this, because Matthew 27 is the only place where we find this. Matthew chapter 27, verse 52 it says, when the veil of the temple was torn, it says, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints, that's Old Testament saints, which slept, which were in the grave, arose and came out of the graves after His resurrection. That's significant. After Jesus' resurrection, and went into the holy city and appeared unto many. You say, preacher, what really happened? Could I be honest? I do not know. All I know is God said it, and I believe it. Not all the Old Testament saints, Jerusalem couldn't have handled them all. 
But there were some Old Testament saints that arose and they didn't appear in Jerusalem until Jesus arose first. Why? Because the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 15, He's the first fruits of them that sleep. Jesus is the first one to ever be resurrected. And then the Bible says, afterward, those of us who belong to Him at His coming, and some of these people got a little advance on that. I think they probably ascended with Jesus when He ascended to heaven. It was a miracle. I can't explain it. It messes up our neat little theological dispensational charts. We'll find out someday how it all happened, how it all fits together. What was the point that God was making here? Simply this, that the cross of Jesus Christ is the basis for the greatest hope of the resurrection. Even in His death, Jesus was able to give life to others. They arose when He died. They came out of the grave. Amazing, the miracles of Jesus. Then thirdly, Jesus died to complete an unseen miracle. In a lot of movies, the Temptation of Christ, the Jesus film, Mel Gibson's famous movie, but no movie, no recording, no words can capture the greatest anguish of Christ upon the cross. The greatest suffering of Jesus on the cross of Calvary was greater than the nails that held Him fast. It was more excruciating than the lashes that ripped His flesh from His body. It was more stabbing than the jagged thorns that pierced His brow and that thorn that was placed upon Him. You know what it was? Here it was. It was the agony that Jesus endured for you and for me at the hands of His own Father when He became sin for us. And that's what results in the miracle of regeneration. Had it not been for that, you and I could never be saved. There would be no hope. There would be no forgiveness. There would be no justification whatsoever. Oh, let's rejoice in that with the time we have remaining today. I'll just use a couple of words. They both start with EX. Maybe you'll remember this. I want you to see the exchange and then the exclamation. The exchange on the cross, a wonderful exchange took place. You know what happened? On the cross, Jesus took your guilt and mine. That's why God the Father could not look upon His own Son. He took your punishment. He took my punishment. And in exchange for that, when we believe on Him, He gives us His righteousness. (laughs) That's a good deal. Never been a better deal than that in the world. He takes our sin, He takes our guilt, and He gives us His righteousness. That doesn't happen automatically. Not everybody's going to heaven. But it has happened to many people. I remember singing a song years ago. It's not in our hymn book anymore. It talks about the windows of heaven are open, the blessings are falling tonight. And there's a part of that little chorus that says, I gave Him my old tattered garment. He gave me a robe of pure white. I'm feasting on manna from heaven. And that's why I'm happy tonight. You know why there's a bunch of people that are happy here today? That's not painted smiles. 
That's not artificial joy. That's because they know Jesus and the free pardon of sin. They know that they have the righteousness of Jesus Christ imputed to them. doesn't matter what happens in this world. world doesn't happen what happens in Ukraine or Russia or with the economy in the United States of America. We have a hope beyond the grave. It's anchored in Jesus Christ and we can have joy. Paul said it so beautifully in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. If you have time to find that quickly, I would encourage you. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21, the last verse of the chapter. You have to know who the pronouns are referring to, so I'll supply that for you. For he, that is God, for he hath made him, that is Jesus, to be sin for us who knew no sin. Jesus never sinned one time. He could point his, acu- his finger at his accusers of his day and say, which of you convinces me of sin? What can you charge against me? They had to fabricate something in order to get him crucified. God hath made Jesus to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him That's a wonderful truth, but it should come as no surprise because it had been prophesied for hundreds of years in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament scriptures, that that's exactly what would happen. Isaiah lifted up his prophetic trumpet in the wonderful, marvelous 53rd chapter of Isaiah, and he said, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord, that's Jehovah, hath laid on him, his suffering servant, the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. The Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. 700 years before it happened. That's why Jesus is the only way. You know, we, we have this fuzzy idea of tolerance. Nobody wants to be bigoted. Nobody wants to come across as intolerant. That's the anathema today. You can be anything but bigoted, but to- intolerant. But I'm here to tell you this morning, folks, the Bible says Jesus is the only way. I'm sorry, Buddha is not the way. Confucius is not the way. Mohammed is not the way. Jesus said, I am the way. He was either telling the truth or he was an imposter or he was deceived or both. A madman, another writer said. So you have to make up your mind. Did he tell the truth? Is his claim valid? He's the only way. No other man did what he did. No other man could do what he did. And therefore, apart from Jesus Christ, you cannot be saved from your overwhelming guilt. God doesn't grade on the curve. As I say in a moment, He demands perfect righteousness in order to enter His heaven. And the only way we can have that perfect righteousness is to have the righteousness of Jesus Christ credited to us. That's the exchange. Look at the exclamation once again. We've read that to begin with in verse 30 of chapter 19. Jesus cried, it is finished. In our English Bible, that's three words. In the Greek, it's just one. Tetelestai. Tetelestai. 
And Jesus uttered this, the Bible says, with a loud voice. This was not a, the weak cry of somebody just about to expire. No, he had just moistened his lips with a sour wine. The only time he did so, he refused it otherwise. He moistened his lips with a sour wine, uh, sour wine and he screamed to Telestai. It is finished. It is accomplished. What in the world did he mean? Was he just saying, I'm glad this is over with? Oh, no. He was saying this, your sin debt is paid in full. Every obligation you have to God the Father because of your sin has been accomplished in me. He became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. He takes your guilt. He gives you his righteousness. So I ask you, if it is finished, if it's done, if everything that needs to be done for your soul's salvation has been accomplished by Jesus on the cross, what more is there for you to do? Nothing. Nothing. Just receive the gift of salvation by reaching out and receiving it. You can't take credit for that. Can a beggar take credit for accepting bread or a coin from somebody? There's nothing you can do. You say, well, sure, there's something I can do. I mean, it's, I, I, I need to do something for that. No, wait, no, there's nothing you can do. You're 2,000 years too late. It's already been done. Jesus has already paid the sin debt. He's procured everything, the whole package for you, forgiveness, eternal life, a positive righteousness, the Holy Spirit, a new nature, an inheritance in heaven. You name it, you receive it when you get the resurrected Christ. That's the miracle of the cross, and I've spent a lot of time on that, so I have to hasten with what's the chief feature today, and that is the miracle of the empty tomb. When Mary Magdalene reached the sepulcher, it was still dark, but she could see that the huge stone, a round stone, it, it could be rolled. It took a little elbow grease, a little umph, but that stone could be rolled, but she, she didn't do it. It already had been rolled away. So when Peter got there, he was fearless. One thing about Peter, if he's going to do it, he's going to do it whole hog, amen? He would rush in where angels fear to tread. So he rushes in and he sees the grave clothes. He sees the, 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 the claws that wrapped Jesus. Remember, he was not embalmed. They just put spices in, in between the folds of those grave clothes. He saw the sudarium, the napkin, it says in the King James, the thing that was wrapped around Jesus' head. It was all neatly folded and put away. Isn't that something? And the napkin wasn't put on top of the other grave clothes. It was in a place by itself. You know why? The napkin was what went around his face. The rest of the grave clothes went around the body. The head is separated from the body. We're the body. Jesus is the head. He's in heaven. We're on earth. What a fitting emblem of, this, of, of the situation that exists right now. It's not going to always be that way. One day the head's going to be reunited with the body. It was a miracle. 
defying all natural law. Jesus really died, but three days later, He really arose bodily from that borrowed tomb. No corruption set in, just like the psalmist had said in the 16th Psalm. His lifeless body went in that tomb, but before any decay could take place, three days later, He came out. That tomb was empty. Please consider with me the fact that because Christ arose, or in that Christ arose, that's the only adequate accounting of the facts. The tomb of Joseph was empty. A rich man, Joseph of Arimathea, a band of frightened disciples are suddenly energized and emboldened. Hundreds of people claim to have seen the resurrected Christ. Their lives are so changed by that belief that they're willing to tie for it. Can you account for that in any other way but what but that Jesus really arose from the dead. Oh, wicked men, full of hearts of unbelief, will come up with all kinds of strange notions to account for these facts. Some of them have espoused what is called the swoon theory. They think that Jesus didn't really die. He just fainted. He was placed unconscious in the tomb. But later, a few hours later, he revived Yeah, 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 really? If you believe that Jesus faint from scourging and blood loss and dehydration could disengage himself from those linen wrappings, tear the sudarium from his face, roll away the stone from the door after breaking the Roman seal, subdue an armed guard, if you believe that, I've got a bridge in New York I want to sell you. There are those who believe his body was stolen. As you might recall, that's what the Jewish leaders bribed the Roman guards, the soldiers to say. They said, it's almost like they expected it to happen. Isn't that amazing? And when the tomb was empty, they said, just say, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we slept. Yeah, really? What were the disciples going to do with that dead body? They were terrified. They were hiding from the authorities. How in the world would they suddenly get the harebrained idea to overpower the Roman guards, break the seal, and steal the body? Utterly preposterous. Then there are those who theorize that the disciples wanted Jesus alive so bad that they just imagined that He'd come back to life. But they were just dreaming. They were just hallucinating. But the Bible says more than 500 people at one time saw the resurrected Christ. How could all of them have been hallucinating? There's only one explanation that fits the indisputable facts. Jesus literally arose from the dead, from the grave on the third day. And His disciples were so transformed by that that from a group of shivering, cowering men who had scattered after abandoning their Lord into a fearless band that they were so willing to become martyrs for Christ. And most of them did become martyrs for Christ. Why? Because they knew He was alive. second thing I want you to see is Christ arose. He's the only accountable anchor for our faith. The fact of His resurrection is the only acceptable anchor for our faith. 
Verse 8, then went in also the other disciple, which came first to the sepulcher. That was John. He was younger than Peter. Uh, they had a foot race. John was a better athlete, got there first, but he wasn't quite as brave, so he didn't go in. Peter catches up to him. He goes in, and when Peter goes in, then John goes in. And the Bible says he saw and believed. That expression means more than just that John finally believed that the body of Jesus was not in the tomb. No, John had to work through his fears, but he was the first of our Lord's followers. As far as the men were concerned, the 12 apostles, the 11, Judas had already committed suicide by this point. He was the first of the 11 to believe that Jesus had literally risen from the dead. He was the disciple that Jesus loved. He was quick to love, and therefore he was quick to believe. John saw the empty tomb and believed. A week later, Thomas, forever known as Doubting Thomas, he saw the nail prints and the spear wound in Jesus' hands and side, and he believed, and Jesus said to him in verse 29 of the same chapter, John chapter 20, Jesus said unto him, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. And I want to qualify for that blessing. I've never seen the resurrected Christ, but I have believed on him. The evidence is overwhelming. Very quickly as I close today, in what sense is Christ's resurrection the anchor of our faith? First of all, the resurrection of Jesus is the death of death. It's the death of death. Ever since the fall of man in the garden, man has been trying to cheat death. We talked about that recently when I preached a message on transhumanism. Ted Williams, the great baseball great, when he who did not believe in Christ, did not believe in Christianity, but when he died, he wanted to be frozen, so uh, cryogenics hadn't gotten very far, but Ted Williams' corpse is in a nine-foot vertical cylinder of liquid nitrogen. Ted Williams did not believe in the resurrection, so the most he could hope for was that he could come back to life when he thought out. It ain't going to happen. And many people since Ted Williams are trying to beat death, and they've been doing that ever since death overtook man in the Garden of Eden. With genetic engineering, men are really thinking they can achieve immortality. Ask some of them. Ask Elon Musk if man is going to beat death. They're setting themselves up for the same bitter disappointment as the explorer Ponce de Leon who sought in vain for that mythical fountain of youth and never found it. Why? Because the Bible says, as it is appointed unto man once to die. You're not going to cheat death unless you are in Christ and alive when He comes back again. Only one man ever conquered death, and His name is Jesus. And he's promised to those who are in him, because I live, ye shall live also. The writer to the Hebrews said in chapter 2, verse 14, through death he, that is Jesus, destroyed him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and delivered them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. After Adam fell, death reigned over all men. But when Jesus rose on Easter morning, he dealt a death blow to death. And so Paul could tell Timothy, 
that young preacher boy in his second epistle right before he died, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10, our Savior Jesus Christ has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And those of us who are saved, those of us who are in Jesus, we belong not to death, we belong to life. So that's why we don't fear death. Last thing I want you to see is that the resurrection of Christ is the declaration of righteousness. I've talked about this some already, but I'd like to hammer that nail a little bit deeper. Would you take your Bibles to one last passage today? Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. And look at the last verse. Well, the last two verses. We'll get in the context. Verses 24 and 25. Romans chapter 4, verse 24. But for us also, talking about the righteousness of Christ imputed, but for us also to whom it shall be imputed if we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who, referring to that same Jesus, who was delivered for our offenses, he was delivered up to Pilate to be crucified, and he was raised again for our justification. You say, that's a big theological word, preacher. What in the world does that mean? Oh, I'm so glad you asked. The word justification means, to be justified means to be declared righteous. To be declared perfectly, positively righteous. And it is the act of God. Only God can do that. You can't work it up. Did you, know that, did you know that in order for God to let you or me into heaven, He demands perfect righteousness? And I know what some of you are thinking. Oh, that's not fair. No man's perfect. You're beginning to get it. You're beginning to get it. No man is perfect. We're all sinners. We're all in the same boat. The only man who ever lived that never sinned was Jesus Christ. And that's why His death could substitute for ours. And that's why His righteousness can be positively credited to us. Because the Bible says, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, in the famous Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said this, look it up, it's words in red in your Bible. Jesus said, except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, who were they? They were the outwardly very righteous, very pious, very religious Except your righteousness shall exceed the outward righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case, no exception, enter into the kingdom of heaven. God demands perfect righteousness in order to be admitted to heaven. Perfect. So if you slip up one time trying to do it on your own, I'm sorry, you've blown it. The only way you can attain to perfect righteousness in the sight of God is to have the righteousness of Jesus Christ credited to your bankrupt account. And unless that has happened, you may think you're saved, but you are deceived. If you really understand what I just said, and you've never done this, your number one concern in life will be simply this. How can I get that righteousness? God doesn't grade on the curve. He demands perfect righteousness. 
I'll close with an illustration, and I'm done. The best illustration I've ever heard about justification was given by the late Dr. Warren Wiersbe, died just a few years ago. It was not original with him. I think he mentioned a man by the name of Roy Gustafson, but he heard it. True story. Years ago, an Englishman put his Rolls Royce on a ferry and went across the channel to the continent for a holiday. He was having a great time just driving around the countryside in Europe, and suddenly the motor of that Rolls Royce died. This was a few years ago, so he couldn't just get on his cell phone. He cabled the Rolls Royce people back in England, and he said, I'm having trouble with my car. It's ruining my holiday. What do you suggest I do? This is what they cabled back. They said, stay put. Don't move. Just give us your location. We will fly a mechanic to you and take care of it. Sure enough, the mechanic arrived, repaired his Rolls Royce. He flew back to England. The man could hardly enjoy the rest of his holiday. He was so worried about the bill, the astronomical bill he knew he was going to get. He got back to England. No bill was in the mailbox. He waited a few more days. No bill. So he cabled again, and he said, How much do I owe you for fixing my Rolls Royce, flying a mechanic all the way to the mainland of Europe to fix it? All he got was a brief letter from Rolls Royce office that said this, Dear Sir, there is no record anywhere in our files that anything ever went wrong with a Rolls Royce. You owe us nothing. Beloved, that's justification. When the devil accuses you, and he is the accuser of the brethren, when he accuses you to God the Father, God says, wait a minute, let me check. And he looks in his record and he says, in my record, I have no mark at all against my child. I have no record that he ever did one wrong thing. The righteousness of Jesus Christ has been credited to him. Why? How? Because God raised him from the dead. That's how we can know. Let's pray. Father, thank you for raising your son from the dead and thereby proving to us that you accepted his sacrifice, his death on our behalf. Thank you. Thank you, Father. You are a great miracle-working God. If you could raise Jesus from the dead, you can save me from my sin. You can give me victory over that sin. Would you show forth your mighty resurrection power in our midst even right now and get glory to yourself? We'll be careful to give you that glory in Jesus' name. Amen.